Well, over the last uh, decade, we have witnessed uh, a few industries here in the USA take a, take a nosedive. Uh, for many, uh, because of the, the, the current pandemic, uh, they may face irreparable damage and uh, suffer losses and eventually may go out of existence altogether. Um, some are due to various reasons for why the decline is taking place. Some are due to upgrades and developments of technology. Some are just due to the fact that there are work jobs being shipped overseas. Uh, others are still due to just declining use of practical value. We just don't need them as much anymore. You could probably think of some of these that would be going out. Um, some of these include manufacturing jobs, uh, specifically manufacturing jobs around office supplies, stationary products, uh, textile fabrics, curtain linens, home telephones, uh, hosiery and socks, and tobacco manufacturing. These are all kind of industries that are declining over the last 10 years. Other industries include bookstores, uh, newspaper publishers, sound recording studios, formal wear and costume rentals, port and har harbor arbor, uh, operations, photo finishing, cable programming, movie theaters, taxis, department stores, and videotape and disc rental stores. Right? Though, that last one, I'm surprised it's still there. Um, but, you know, there's lots of things going out uh, of, uh, because of various reasons. But one thing that actually is also declining in the United States of America is the local church. This decline has been uh, pretty significant. At the current rate of decline over the next 10 years, 55,000 churches will close their doors in the United States of America. 55,000 will close. And while every local church has its life cycle, meaning there's not a single local church that's still here from the time Jesus and the disciples, you know, started back in the New Testament. Uh, everyone has their, every church has its life cycle. It is interesting to note that this is a number is, is growing rapidly. Why is that? Why is that happening? Well, we could chalk it up to the, the growth of maybe irreligion in our culture, the rise of the, what's called the nuns, as it has been called, those who are non-religious. Uh, we could chalk it up to the pandemic, right? Or we could chalk it up to uh, maybe advances in technology where people can just kind of watch online and get this podcast, that podcast, and watch things and not have to be committed to a local church. You could say that. But at the, but at the end of the day, there is one very, very important reason why this is the case. And it's the lack of the church taking the Great Commission, that which we just read, seriously. That's the ultimate reason why. And, and by seriously, I mean purposefully engaging lost, hurting, and broken people with the hope of the gospel with sacrificial service. The self-isolation of Christians from the world around them is going to be the cause of the death of many churches. We've reached a point in our culture, much like Europe uh, decades ago, where Christendom no longer reigns. Now, that may be a new word for you. Yeah, Christendom, what is that? What is that? Christendom culture is when Christianity is not just the, the dominant religion of a culture, but also where that religion kind of rules, sometimes literally, you know, with kings and queens and such, uh, by being the voice and influence in the culture in all areas of life, including things like ethics or family or politics, etc. And what happened in Europe, which is happening now here, is that local Bible-believing churches are many times not engaging and serving the culture of lost people around them, but rather they're running and hiding at best and ruining the, the gospel message with fighting to retain their position of power at the worst. 
J.D. Greer in a book called Gaining by Losing, which our pastors and deacons have gone through, and I know the current missions committee is kind of working through this uh, book as well. It gives some helpful imagery that may help us kind of wrap our mind around uh, some of this. He offered that the local church could see itself as three different types of boats. You've got the cruise liner, you've got a battleship, and you've got an aircraft carrier. Let's look at each of those for a moment. A church cruise liner offers Christians luxuries for the whole family. You get to choose your service, you get to choose your style of music, you get to be entertained, all while having appropriate child care. Members of a, of a church cruise liner ask the following questions. Can this church improve my quality of life? Does it help keep my children from going off the deep end? Does the pastor preach funny, time-conscious sermons? And do I really like the music? And if one doesn't like anything particular about this particular church cruise liner, there are plenty of other church cruise liners in the harbor. You could just hop off one and go hop on another one and take that one for a week and jump on a different one for the next week. As this happens, the result of any particular church cruise liner actually growing in numbers is typically going to be through either births, right, they're having children, or through transfers from hopping from one boat to another. Meanwhile, uh, that pool is getting smaller and smaller every year. At the same time, there's a larger and larger pool of unchurched people who are going to hell, but hey, at least Christians are comfortable and safe when there are church cruise liners. Then there's the church battleship. In this view of the church, there is a, a clear mission, all right, they have, and its success is seen in how loudly, dramatically, and uh, publicly they fight for this mission. Church battleships, they pay its pastor or pastors to run the ships, and the role of individual members of those uh, of those battleships is to gather on board, watch the, the pastors maybe pull the trigger once a week, and maybe even share their appreciation or lack thereof about how they executed that, uh, that particular mission that week. Many of these church battleships also suffer from what we'll call mission drift. Instead of, of the mission being reaching the lost, fulfilling the Great Commission that we read about here, uh, the mission becomes to win the cultural war and to reestablish Christendom in America. Many times these church battleships also want no part with joining other church battleships, okay? We're not going to get on the same mission. We're going to turn around and we're going to fire at each other, right? Richard Lovelace, way back in the, the 70s, wrote a book uh, noticing this trend back then, which has only gotten worse these days. He noted how many churches have, have taken on what he called the Delta Effect, it's the Delta effect is basically when each particular church backs itself into its own little cove and then starts firing shots at the other not so successful or good enough churches and shoot them for the things that they're not doing well, right? So they're all backing in, we do this well and you don't do that and we're better at this than you and they're just kind of shooting each other over their expertise. Meanwhile, the, the world is out there floating in the water and life preservers, right? Just floating around dying and yet we're, you know, we're here shooting each other and they wonder and they shake their head and wonder, uh, why would anyone even want to go or much less listen to these people? Then there is the church aircraft carrier. They also have a mission. And the job is to set up and equip planes to take the battle elsewhere. Everyone on board the ship, including the captain, is seeking to get these planes into the air for battle. The goal of the church aircraft carrier is to reach the lost and unchurched that are, on, that are, that are not on board the carrier and to do it all together. Okay? Now, don't misunderstand me here. I'm, I'm not talking about helping necessarily missionaries take the gospel across a body of water or across a border. That is great, and that is very necessary. I'm not downplaying that either, but that's not what I'm talking about. 
I'm talking about each individual Christian participating, supporting, and encouraging the local mission of reaching the lost and seeing more churches planted in their areas. This is where we think, we plan, we retool what we do to be more effectively, to more effectively reach lost people with the gospel. And this church seeks to do what the author of Hebrews taught us to do. This is what he said here, Hebrews 13, 13. Therefore, let us go to him, speaking of Jesus, outside the camp and bear the approach, the reproach he endured. Right? Go outside the camp. Get off the ship. <laughs> Send the planes. So we come to our passage today, and I said we, we reach the pinnacle of Jesus' teaching here. He has risen from the grave, and he gives his followers clear commands to go, and as he says here, to make disciples of the nations. We are to be that kind of aircraft carrier church and seek with every fiber of our being to see the lost, the unchurched, those outside our walls to come to know Jesus and be served. In essence, what Jesus is calling for us here to do and reason why we've taken the time in the Gospel of Matthew is to live the life of Jesus ourselves. We're called Christians, little Christs, right? We're called followers of Christ. We're supposed to live out the very life that Jesus lived out and incarnate his life into ours, right? Into our particular culture, wherever we particularly are. And here's what we're going to look at today. Okay? We're going to look at the, uh, this mission that he's put us on. We're going to look at the power for the mission. We're going to look at the principles of that mission and the promise. All right, number one, the power. Two parts here. The power of the mission. First of all, the first element of power is God's glory. Okay? Now stay with me for a moment. You look up at verse 16 in our text. It says the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain in which Jesus had directed them, and they saw him, it says, and they worshiped him. So here we see the resurrected Christ, and notice that he accepts worship. This is a very important part of this. In other gospel accounts, you may be familiar with other parts of this story, in other gospel accounts, like the gospel of John, we find Thomas, typically called Doubting Thomas, right? We find Thomas, who is actually uh, falls down at Jesus' feet and says, what, my Lord and my God, right? In none of these accounts does Jesus go, you know what, disciples, you need to stop that. At no point does he say, Thomas, knock it off. Okay, guys, you've gone a little bit too far. Right? It doesn't say any of that. What does he do? He accepts. He accepts. Even the book of Revelation, we, we find John falling at, uh, down uh, at the feet of an angel in the, in the book of Revelation. And the angel basically says to John, oh, wait a minute, buddy. You need to stop that. Okay? You, you need to worship God. Let's knock that off. That's not appropriate. I'm not worthy of that. And that's why he was rebuked, right? Because no matter how glorious an angel might have been, uh, an angel was not worthy of being worshipped. Same is true of any kind of person. So that tells us here, Jesus is not, <laughs> he's not a person. He's a person, but he is God, resurrected. But here in Matthew, people are bowing to Jesus, and there is no protest from anyone, not even Jesus himself. And this inclusion of worship, before we get into the, some of the commands here that Jesus gives, is super important because, like I said, it is the power behind the very mission that Jesus is sending them on and sending us on. We do all that we are commanded to do in the following verses, right? We seek to go outside the camp. We seek to launch off the aircraft carrier. We seek to go into dangerous territories and be possibly shot down. Ultimately, my friends, because Jesus is worthy of worship because he's resurrected and he's worthy of that. I mean, we lose that fact sometimes. 
This means we seek to fulfill the Great Commission, guys, not through sheer willpower or maybe because we feel guilty about not doing it or because we want more notches on our belt or jewels on our crowns or whatever else we may throw out there, but because Jesus is worth more voices. He's worth more people coming to know him. He's worthy of being worshipped by more people. His worth is why we do all that we do to get the planes off the ship, right? This is why Jesus would tell us way back in the Gospel of John early on in that book, in verse 23 of that chapter, he said the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So he's seeking. This is why the psalmist would say in Psalm 67, 3, let, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And I love the zeal of the psalmist there. Not a few people, not many people. <laughs> let all the people, right? The psalmist wants more worshipers to see the value of God instead of the depleted value of this broken world. He wants to add more voices, as it were, to sing the praises of God forever. Realize that one day, okay, this, will all, this world will be done. Evangelism, mission, all this stuff will be over. The Great Commission will be finished. But guess what? Worship will continue. Worship will go on. This mission has a very limited time period to it, doesn't it? But worship will go on forever. That, that makes worship ultimate, not mission. This means that missions exist, okay, because worship does not. So we should, we should want Jesus to be praised and loved by more people, both for his glory, but also, get this, for the good of people, right? For the good of people, because this is what it means to love people, doesn't it? This is what it means to love them. I love John Piper speaks about this all the time, but here, here's one element of what he said here. He said, love is helping people toward the greatest beauty, the highest value, the deepest satisfaction, the most lasting joy, the biggest reward, the most wonderful friendship, and the most overwhelming worship. Love is helping people toward God. When we look out on our town, our city, our culture, we, we should want to have people come alive to the fact that God is worthy, that God is beautiful, and that God is all-satisfying. Jesus is worth more voices, right? This is part of the fuel. This is part of the power is God's very glory. Number two, God's sovereignty as well is another power behind the mission. Jesus says in verse 18, notice he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So here, here's Jesus making very clear his absolute authority, not just over the grave, because he did rise again, right? He's resurrected, but power over all things. He doesn't limit it to the grave. He limits it to all things. He's demonstrated this over and over in the Gospel of Matthew, hasn't he? We've seen this over and over again in the passages in the New Testament of Matthew. We've seen Jesus demonstrate his power, right? Power over disease and sickness, power over demons, power over even death itself. And the reason he makes this claim of authority and sovereignty before he tells the disciples and us to get going is to let us know that he's in control. And get this, he's even control over the people that will come to faith in him. I know this is controversial. People to get, you know, get all kind of upset over this stuff, but it's really not that, that, that difficult. This means that people are coming to faith in Jesus. This means that what it means, people are coming to faith in Jesus, and it's not dependent okay, upon our persuasiveness. It's not dependent upon our creativity or our ingenuity, but dependent upon the absolute sovereignty of Jesus. That's a huge power. It doesn't make you sit still. That makes you move. It gives you absolute assurance that people are going to respond. He's bringing people to himself. He's unable to, get this, he's unable to unlock the key of every single heart, no matter how hard they may be. Anyone, 
at any time he wants. This is why, this is what Jesus would say in the Gospel of John. He said, John 10, 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. There will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus makes it clear that those standing before him that day were not the only sheep, right? We're not the only ones to come to him. The fold he's speaking of here is Judaism, but he's, 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 talking, he's, talking about, he's going after other folds too. He said, what, what does that mean, other folds? Other folds like the Roman folds, people from the Greek folds, from the American fold, from the Brownsburg fold, right? There's sheep all over the place that he's bringing to himself. And notice he doesn't say, I, I will have other sheep or I hope to have other sheep. He says, I have. It's crazy. I have other sheep from other folds. I have them. It's a guarantee that people will come to him. There are elect people out there who have not been brought yet into the family of God, which, by the way, is why the Great Commission is still happening. Do you understand that? That's why, that's why Jesus has not returned yet, is because there's still people to come to him. Matthew 24, verse 14 says, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It's like this, it, it's, he hasn't come back yet. People are still coming to faith. This truth doesn't turn the church into a church cruise liner. It doesn't turn the church into a church battleship. Instead, it motivates us to get those planes off the aircraft carrier and into the air. The truth of God's sovereignty of the mission means it will be successful. Do you understand why that's so important? It's not just some theological thing to debate about. Like, people will come to faith. They will. No matter how hard human hearts are, they can be and will be broken by God's sovereign grace. It was a missionary, John Alexander, who said the following. He said, at the beginning of my missionary career, I said that if predestination were true, I could not be a missionary. But now, after 20 years of struggling with the hardest of the human heart, I say I could never be a missionary unless I believe the doctrine of predestination. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying, like, yeah, I needed to believe this because otherwise I was just going to quit because nobody was listening. But now I know God, God is going to bring people so I can keep going. This was the power of missions. We'll see in the book of Acts. This is the power of the mission there. Acts 18, 9 through 11, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. He's, he's about to go into Corinth, and God says, but go on speaking. Don't be silent. I'm with you. Very familiar to our text here. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Keep in mind the gospel has not gone there yet. Okay? I got many here. Go do it, Paul. He stayed a year and six months, which to Paul was like a, an eternity. He never stayed somewhere that long. A year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So Jesus tells Paul that there are people in Corinth who are going to be his. He has circled their names in eternity past, as it were, and they will come to him. And Paul kept at this, and he knew this to be true. This is uh, early on in Acts 13, 48. The Gentiles heard this. They began rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I love, I love that, that, that Jesus doesn't say, um, oh, Paul, you know what? You just, I got people. You just need to be quiet. Just zip it. Don't say anything. I got this. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you don't, you don't do anything. It's okay, Paul. No, instead he says, Paul, go preach. Go give the gospel. Go serve. Go do all the things I've commanded you to do, and I will use all of that to bring people to myself. But don't worry about the results, right? Just keep, leave that to me. I'll bring people. But you pour your heart out and serve. And he did, didn't he? I mean, you read the book of Acts, the guy almost died multiple times and pretty much did die one time. He got dragged out of the city and he got back up and what did he do? He went back into it again because he knew this to be true. 
Jesus hasn't returned yet because there are people he is still bringing to himself. And that's power to get the planes off the, off the runway, right, into the air. That's the power behind the mission. God's glory, God's sovereignty. Number two, the principles of the mission. Now, he gives us instructions here, some of the how-to elements. And I'm just going to list each one and kind of just briefly talk about them. Maybe the first one a little bit more than the others, but that's okay because I'm going to preach here. Number one. Going. <laughs> going. First thing he says is, go, therefore. And the language really is, this is important, the language, the English doesn't quite give us this, but the original language, the text actually reads, while going, make disciples. Okay? The implication is that the disciples whom Jesus was talking to on this day, they understood that. They didn't need to be commanded to go. They, they were already going. They understood what Jesus meant. They didn't need to be told to go. But many churches, many Christians today, don't embrace that truth. Right? If it is an aircraft carrier, they just sit there, hunker down, eat their popcorn, and try to, try to make the best of it, right? Collect canned goods, build our bomb shelters, pray for the rapture to happen, while morphing into church cruise liners. And for those who have enough energy left, they morph into church battleships and store up ammo and shoot other churches, right? And hope that Jesus is proud of them for the stands that they have taken. Writer S.D. Gordon recounted the story of a group of amateur climbers who were climbing Mount Blanc and, uh, in the French Alps. On the evening before the climb, the guides uh, st uh, stated uh, the basic requirements for success. And because it was an extremely difficult climb, leaving all un unnecessary accessories had to be left behind. One very athletic young man, you can see how this is going to go, uh, discounted the guide's advice, thinking it, would, uh, it could not possibly apply to him. Right? I got this. <laughs> he showed up for the climb with a blanket, small case of wine, a camera, a set of notebooks, and a pocket full of snacks. Although warned, again by the guides, the strong-willed young man nevertheless started out ahead of the rest of the climbers to prove his superior skill of climbing, and he could do it with all the stuff. But as the other climbers proceeded up the mountain behind him, following the advice of the guides, they began to notice various articles left by the path. First, they noticed the young man's food and wine. Second, as they were going a little bit further up, they, they noted they, they saw the notebooks and camera. Finally, they saw the blanket laid on the side of the path. The young man managed to reach the peak after having shed all of the things in which he thought he needed to get to the top. Applying this illustration to the church, Mr. Gordon said the following. He said, unlike the young climber who eventually paid the price for success, many Christians, when they discover they cannot reach the top, uh, with their loads of stuff, simply stop climbing and they just settle down on the side of the mountain and just exist. Listen, God has always, guys, been in the business of sending us out, okay, and to keep going up the mountain. He's never called us to be content and settle down and take it easy and abandon the mission. He has never called us to hunker down, load up the ammo, and shoot other churches either. Whenever God has brought someone in in the Bible, he always sends them out. This is always kind of the MO, okay? It always happens. He brings them in, he sends them out. Just think about your Bible if you're familiar with it. A couple of the characters here in the stories. Abraham. God brought him in. What did he do? Send him out to be a blessing to all nations. Moses brought in the burning bush. Sends him out to go let the people, you know, help, you know, let the people go, right? Lead him out of Egypt. Joshua is brought in by God. And sent out to what? Lead the people into the promised land. Right? We get to the New Testament. Peter on the boat with Jesus is brought in. He sees the glory of Jesus. He understands who he is. He, he's brought in. And what, what happens? I'll make you fishers of men. He sends them out in our very text here. Paul was brought in, blinded, 
you know, by the glory of the resurrected Christ, he was brought in, and what happens? I'm going to send you out, and you're going to be a missionary to the Gentiles. This is always happening throughout the Bible. Parkside, God has brought you to himself. He has established this local church so that we would be sent out to reach the unlost, the lost, those outside of the bubbles that we tend to exist in. He has brought us in to send us out to plant new churches so that more people can hear about Jesus. We must shed any unnecessary, uh, anything unnecessary to do just that. And if we die climbing up the hill as it were, then we die, so be it. But we gotta shed, we gotta shed unnecessary weight and, and make our way to the top. We can't sit at the bottom. We can't sit along the path and just be comfortable with it. We need to keep pushing. We need to go forward. That's going. Number two, discipling. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples. The, I'm going to give you a little Greek word here for a second. The Greek word is matheteo. You're like, oh boy, that sounds like math. And that's right. It actually did come from math. And some of you got anxiety just when I said the word math, okay? But it's important. The word, the word discipling is actually, or make disciples is from the English word math. And the word means learners, okay? Learners, that's all it means. It's an educational term. And get this, this is important for you to understand. It's a, we could call it a, a slow, corporate, earthy kind of word, okay? It, it practically means engaging non-followers of Jesus and seeking to teach them about him so that they learn and they follow him. And it's important that, because as you read this, some people have misinterpreted this passage or invaded and put their own kind of words into this thing. Understand Jesus does not say, go therefore and make converts. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say that at all. It doesn't, it doesn't say that. The point is that it's going to say, go make disciples. More often than not, what that means is it's going to take time. It's going to take patience. It's going to take teaching. It's going to take answering questions to get, a lot of, to get people to become disciples of Jesus. You know, I'm a student of church history. I love church history, read about it, learn about it a lot. One of the greatest tragedies, honestly, in American history regarding Christianity is the ministry of a guy named Charles Finney, who went throughout New York and New England back in the 19th century seeking converts for Christianity. He'd go to one town, preach or whatever, and he'd go to the next one. He just moved all around without any discipleship, any following up, any questions, any working with people, and would just go on and be like, okay, you're all Christians now, let's move to the next one and do all that. Today, that area of New York and New England is now called, referred to as the burned over district because of that. Explains some of the coldness and hardness to Christianity in that area if you've ever lived there or been there before. Jesus wants disciples, my friends. He wants disciples, not just decisions. He wants people whose lives are fashioned and shaped by his teaching to love people, not just a, a, just a quick response. And don't misunderstand me here when I say this. Conversion, or regeneration is a word the Bible uses, is a one-time event where people are born anew and they are forgiven. It's not a process. It's not something that happens over time. It is a one-time event. So I'm, I'm clear, make sure I'm clear in stating that understanding. But discipling someone into faith and converting them into faith are very different approaches. Discipling involves, again, answering questions, teaching, explaining, modeling, walking with someone like Jesus did his disciples, right? It's not that hard to understand it. Just go back and watch Jesus. What did he do? He discipled the disciples, right? It took time. Converting someone, a lot of times, is trying to get them to make a decision, raise a hand, sign a card, and then letting them go. Move on to the next person, right? It's not the, not the model Jesus gives us. This means a discipleship. Understand this, too. The discipleship is not just a post-Christian experience, a lot of times we use the word discipleship. It's like, okay, I've, I'm now I'm a Christian. I need to be discipled. That's true. It is a post-Christian experience. 
But do you understand the text has not given us a post-Christian experience? It's given you a pre-Christian experience, isn't it? Go make disciples implies that discipleship is also a pre-Christian thing. Just like you disciple someone who is a Christian into the faith and you're teaching them more about Jesus, you also take someone who doesn't know Jesus and you walk with them. You disciple them into the faith. You point them to Jesus. You answer their questions. So discipleship is on both elements, right? Both sides of the, of the, of the thing there. This means that we need to be around unbelievers. We need to, to know them. We need to know their stories. We need to know their questions, demonstrate the reality of Jesus with our life, and let God bring about regeneration in his time. So the question is, who are you discipling into the gospel? Number three, Jesus says, baptizing. He goes on to say, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the next action step once someone comes to faith in Jesus. It's actually, we, a lot of times the language we'll use is it's the first step of obedience, right? Once you've come to Jesus, this is your first step. It's a public, outward act that reflects a personal, inward change. It's so elementary and so close to faith in Christ that when we get to the book of Acts, we'll see this, that it's virtually, though not actually, synonymous, right? They happen, once someone got to faith in Christ, they immediately were baptized. Like, it's just one after the other. Understand that submerging someone, or you, underwater doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. It simply gives public testimony that you are, in fact, a disciple of Jesus, and understand historically, again, it's been a way of identifying those who are all in and following Jesus and those who are just faking. Because for someone to get baptized historically and align with Jesus is basically say, sign me up, I'm for Jesus, I want everybody to know about it, and I welcome whatever consequences that come with that. It costs people something to be baptized because it was a public identification with following Jesus. If you've come to faith in Jesus, this is your first step. This is what happens when you come to him, you get baptized. Number four, Jesus says, is teaching. Verse 20 says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So the next step is being taught about Jesus so you live like Jesus. Right? Again, not too complicated here. You, you come to know Jesus, and then you should start, your life should start looking like Jesus. We, theology, we call this sanctification. Right? You become more and more like Jesus as time goes on because you're taught about him. This is why I read your Bible, studying it, being part of a Bible teaching church is so important. Come to Jesus. Coming to Jesus is about following Jesus with your life, right? So it's a whole life commitment. This is why Jesus was saying in Luke 9, 23, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and daily and follow me. Now, step back a moment and let's ask the question about this, the, the, these commands. Where is the going, discipling, baptizing, and teaching done? Where, is it, where does that happen? What's the next book after the Gospels here? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, right? That's what we're going to be looking at. How did they understand this principle to be lived out? They did it how? In and through local churches. That's the whole book of Acts is about. It's about the establishment and growth and use of God using the local church. We often read this text in Matthew 28, and we take a very Western individual kind of view of it, right? It's all about me and my personal mission that God has me on. And that's important. I'm not downplaying that. It's a very important aspect. But the Great Commission is fulfilled through planting and growing local churches. So it involves you, but it involves you through your local church. This is why we are talk about an aircraft carrier church, right? The prep, the instruction, the launching of the planes is done by all the peoples, on the aircraft carrier. So you cannot fulfill the Great Commission without the local church. It's clear by the book of Acts that this is how it works. 
This means that the church, understand this too, this is way misunderstood. The church is not a place for you to just gather information. It's not a classroom. It's not for you, for your kids to be entertained and kept safe. It is a place where the very mission, the very reason for our existence is carried out. We exist today as a church because there are people who don't know Jesus out there. That's why we exist ultimately. We exist today as a church because people are hurting, people are dying, people are suffering, people are hopeless all around us. This is ultimately why God establishes local churches. That's why they ultimately exist and why they should be healthy so that they can do these things. Let me say one more thing. This means that we should be rooting, okay, for other Bible-believing churches to succeed and carry out this mission, right? We're not in competition. We're not firing shots at them. This is not a battleship church. It's not what we're doing. We're not here to say, hey, we do this better than they do. Come to our church instead. Like, that's, that's not the mission. We're not here to collect Christians from other churches to gather in, in this church and then spin them around to the other ones. You understand that pool just shrinks over time, right? And that's why we talked about earlier, the church is just going to die. Because they're not reaching the lost. They're reaching just the same people over and over again. I remember, um, maybe you know my story, I was a church planter in, 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 out in Hollywood, California. And one of the most interesting days for me was uh, one Sunday I had one of my uh, other pastors uh, preach for me. And I went to go visit another church. It was in dead center of Hollywood. I mean, building probably had could hold 750, 800 people, um, was fantastic. We had a church of about, you know, 200, um, almost like all new believers. Like, I mean, it was like full of young and dumb, okay? They were just like, it was, it was fun. Um, but it was, I had that church, and so we went there. I went to that service to try to talk to the pastor or pastors or what, I didn't know their government, what was going on, um, about, hey, let's, let's merge, you know? Let's, uh, you got the building, I'm renting out the Michael Jackson Auditorium. Like, I would rather, if we had a permanent space, you know, the church in the box thing gets old after a while, to set up, tear down, set up, tear down every Sunday. And, um, and so I went there, and it was, when I showed up and the service started, it was me and one member. That was it. That's all that was in the church. We sat in the front row. And the pastor and the, music, the worship pastor got up on the stage, and the worship pastor said, okay, everybody, let's stand up and sing, and looked right over our heads and looked back in the back at, I don't know who, because I turned around, I'm like, who is he looking at? All right, everybody, let's sing. Oh, that's great. And never even looked at us. It's like they were living in a fantasy world somewhere, and the pastor gets up to preach and does the same thing, never looks at us, just looks back in the back at people that don't even exist. So after the service, I go, hey, um, so I got this church up the street that we're renting out this place. It's like 200 brand new believers, like, this will be exciting if we merge like, together, we can work together. And, based, and, the, and the comment that came back to me was this. This is our turf. We got this. We don't need more churches. And I'm, the, I'm looking behind me going like, you got this? Really? <laughs> like, <laughs> what, are you, what kind of world are you living in here? And it was shocking to me to find, and this wasn't just this church, there's many existing churches that were dying that all were just kind of looking at each other like, like any new churches that got around here, like you're on our turf. It's like, it was worse than like M16 gang territory that was in, right? I mean, it was like, they were like competing with like, no, this is our turf, we got this, stay away. And I'm like, aren't we supposed to work together here? Like, we believe the same thing. You're Bible-believing kind of churches, like, why don't we do this? That's a very sad part about the church. I told you before, you start shooting each other. We're going to seek to come alongside of, encourage, support other Bible-believing churches, and mainly in doing this, in seeking to plant new churches together. That should be the point. You're going to hear us talk a lot about church planting. This church, 20, 25-plus years ago, planted a lot of great churches that are around the greater Indianapolis area, and we want to get back into that, but it's not us doing it alone. It's us joining with other Bible-believing churches and doing it together. That's how it's supposed to happen. 
We should not be satisfied with our own health. We should want to see lots of other healthy Bible-believing, gospel-preaching congregations. We should be willing to join other churches, sacrifice, send folks from our own church to start new churches in areas with other local churches. Mark Dever said the following. He said, the members and leaders of a local church are as happy about a new gospel-preaching restaurant as they are about a new restaurant opening the land of starvation. Right? They should be excited to see that open up. Lastly, the promise of the mission. The very last verse here in the Gospel of Matthew. Behold, Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is how we keep going. Jesus has not abandoned his plan for using local churches to fulfill the Great Commission, no matter how dysfunctional they might be. He is with us every step of the way, and he has always been with his people in mission. You know that, right? This is a, this is a phrase Jesus says that actually is echoed throughout the Bible. Joshua 1.5 God said to Joshua, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, God speaking, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Jeremiah 1.8, do not be afraid, for I am with you. And then fast forward to the New Testament, Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you, Jesus says, or forsake you. This This is echoed throughout the scriptures. And just consider the book of Matthew for a moment. If you go all the way back to how it started, back in chapter 1, and you remember this, if you're familiar with Christmas time, you you may know this phrase. Jesus called in Matthew 1, he is called Emmanuel. You're like, that's an interesting name. What does that mean? God is with us. Isn't that interesting? It starts off like a bookend, right? On one side, God is with us. He's he's coming, he's going to be born, God with us. And at the very end, the very last verse of 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 the gospel, I am with you to the end of the age. I love that last part too. It's not I am with you now, and I hope you disciples do it. (laughs) I am with you to the end of the age. What does that mean? He's with every generation. He's with us now. He's with our children and our children's children, right? He's with them. Some of you get afraid of what is to come in the future, right? Jesus is gonna be with them just as he's with us. Through every generation, right? It's not like the church is going to like all of a sudden not exist anymore and everything is just gone. He is continuing to fulfill his great commission and planting local churches through every single generation. This is important for Paul. When we think about Paul, when we think about the book of Acts as we'll be looking at here over the next year, it put, it's what put feet to, to the fire for him. It's what caused him to risk his all and to suffer as he did. Listen, again, Acts 18, 9 and 10. The Lord said to Paul one night, do not be afraid, go on speaking, don't be silent, for what? I am with you. Acts 23, 11, The following night, the Lord stood by me and said, take courage. End of the book of Acts, chapter 27, 23 through 24, says, for this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship, and he said, do not be afraid. And at the very end of Paul's life, the very last letter he wrote, he said this in chapter 4 of that, last chapter of that book, 2 Timothy 4, 16 through 17. In my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me, may not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. It's fascinating, right? It's what kept him going. Now look back in your text here at verse 19. And notice one of the things we didn't, we didn't comment on before. Make disciples of what? All nations. Can you imagine being the disciples on that mountain that day? There's 11 of them. <laughs> that sounds a little daunting, doesn't it? I imagine him saying to Jesus something like, oh, that's a tall task, Jesus. I mean, 
half of us just a minute ago, like when you showed up, didn't even know if you existed. That's why it says in the text, they worshiped him, but some doubted, right? So we were just doubting like five seconds ago, and now you're telling that the 11 of us is gonna, we're gonna reach the nations? Like, ah, that seems like a little much. But here's the thing, it would happen, and it is happening today. This has always been God's mission from Genesis onward, always been God to reach all the nations. Isaiah 49, 6, I will make you, this is speaking of the nation of Israel, light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. It wasn't just about them. It was about God using them to reach others. That's why Exodus 19, 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You're going to represent me to the rest of the world. Peter picks up on this language. 1 Peter 2, 9, applies it to the church and says you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, same language, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Listen, Parkside. There's coming a day where the great commission will be done. It will be fulfilled, okay? What Jesus called for and promised in our passage we're looking at today will come to fruition. Why? Because he's the resurrected Christ. Because he conquered sin and death and hell and Satan on that cross and when he busted out of the grave, right? He's the resurrected king. And look at what the future holds. We, there's more books of the Bible, right? And we get to the very last one, this book of Revelation. Here's what it says, Revelation 7, 9 through 10. Remember, now he told these disciples, make disciples of all nations. Look at this, Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. Huh, interesting from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in her hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This assembly is where the future is headed. When he said make disciples of all nations, it will happen, okay? How wonderful to know that the Great Commission will work. God is going to win. Even if our church or other churches closes its doors, we will never need to be in doubt of the ultimate victory, that this is what's going to happen. And so as we go to communion as a church, consider your part on the aircraft carrier, okay? Consider your part. We all have a role to play. We all need to be engaging the lost, the unchurched around us. Who is that in your life? What is your role at Parkside in all of this? See God's face on this. If you need help, that's what pastors are for. We would love to point you in the right direction. As we take those little cups in front of you and it's got bread and juice, we remember as we take those, we take them as followers of Jesus to remember what Jesus has done. So like baptism we talked about earlier, it's one of the fundamental elements of being a follower of Jesus. It's a, subsequently, you follow Jesus, you, you get baptized, you take communion regularly to remember what Jesus has done. Because my friends, so quickly and so easily, when we look at this kind of thing, this mission, and run out in front of us and just go, well, we gotta do this, and forget the very reason why we do it, or how we're even on it, or how we got brought in. This is why we take communion, to remember the body and blood of Jesus broken and poured out for us. The act does not blot out any sin, doesn't forgive you of anything, but it does serve to help us remember Jesus because, my friends, it is all about him. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. That's why we do it in remembrance of him. If you don't know Jesus, you're welcome, uh, you're welcome today to, to come to him. Welcome to turn and repent and believe in him. And we love to answer any of your questions. We love to disciple you into the faith and answer all the questions you may have as best we can and point you to him, but communion is not for you, okay? 
Let me pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together. Thank you for this, this mission that you've sent us on. We're not here to collect, uh, to take up space. We're not here to, to uh, argue and complain over whatever uh, specialties and things in which we, we want to argue about, and so often we do as a church. Uh, God, I pray that you would help us to get, um, stand shoulder to shoulder and move forward together as we seek to see the world around us. It does not know you. Come to know you. Would you help us in that endeavor, God? We want to, we want to be obedient to you. We want to follow you in this. Um, we want to have a part in playing what you have here. We're thankful for your sovereignty. We're thankful for your glory. We're thankful for your presence. All these things, God, provide us with uh, the power to be able to move forward. Thank you for your death on the cross for our sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.